Welcome back to For Fintech Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community, and mostly your unqualified host. We've got our old friend, Mr. Ryan Falvey, stepping up to the plate. We got him back in the hot seat. Ryan, I, Ryan and I, words, Ryan and I ran into each other at Money 2020 in Vegas last year, and I scared him, uh, but he actually decided to come back on the podcast despite that little run-in. Ryan runs the Financial Venture Studio with a group of absolute badasses. They've invested in the likes of Dave, Profell, Fresh EBT, Point, Daylight, and so, so, so many more. I'm a huge fan of the program and of Ryan. We have fun. They do great work. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Ryan Falvey from the Financial Venture Studio. All right. And now you're allowed to tell me how you're doing, Ryan. Before that was that was all just preamble. Now it's real. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Always, my friend. Always. It's been what a couple years. Has it been two two years maybe since you were on previously. I don't think it's been. I don't think it's been that long. Because uh, I let me be my I, own Jamie here and do some googling. I do. I do remember that it was during the pandemic. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I asked you. I remember asking you how you were staying sane, if I remember correctly. Well, it was also in a weird indoor space like this. It was a, it was a, it was a home office environment. Um, Have you changed locations? I, I've changed locations a couple times during during oh, the pandemic. Actually, catch I've me had up. A number of, I've had a number of interesting work locations. I, uh, I, I worked for a while out of a treehouse. I'm um, sorry. What it was June? It was June thirtieth of twenty twenty. So no, not two years, but. More 18, than one. 18, yeah. 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 That's, that's wild. Okay. So you were in a tree house. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. Briefly. I, I was, I was a tree house. Uh, I, uh, I worked, I worked out of my, my RV for a little bit. Um, like parked in one specific place or were you, it, were was, you it was moving around? around. It was yeah. moving around, but it would be parked when I would be on, on calls and stuff. Um, <laughs> That. No, we note that to, to show that Ryan is a responsible human. It was it would have been very dangerous. I mean, it's not really yeah. an RV. It's like a, it's like a trailer. So it'd been extremely dangerous and, and, and not a particularly good thing to watch. Um, what inspired I, uh, that? Where did the where did the trailer inspiration come from? There was this thing that happened over the last couple of years. Uh, it was called COVID-19. It's a global pandemic. And it just <laughs> shut down the entire economy. I don't know if you've been picking this up at all. And so oh, a lot of people, yeah, okay, I've heard something. They, yeah. they moved their lives around and they had some impromptu purchases and things like that. And so one of mine was a, uh, was a travel trailer. And uh, to, to uh, at one point I had an idea, I'd use it to travel around the country meeting founders, but that's very complicated. Not, not, not something that actually makes any sense of practice. Um, Paul Singer yeah, used that it to back just kind of do some vacationing and stuff. It was good. Nice. It was That's nice. awesome. That's awesome. Are you, do you still do you still own it? Are you keeping it? Is it going to come back out of uh, come back out and get some more use? I still own it. I'm I'm still I'm still paying for it. I pay a couple hundred dollars <laughs> a month for it to sit in the garage, uh, about an hour away from where I live. Uh, I haven't used it for a while, so it's 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 probably coming. It might be on the market soon. It's possible. Fair enough. Well, uh, send me the Craigslist. Send me the Craigslist. Uh, send me the link when you market it, because uh, 
there's a conversation happening in my household about the uh, the the relinquishing of all material and uh, driving around the United States and just like doing podcast tour and making shit up as we go. The no boundaries would be perfect for you. I think that's a perfect solution. So yeah, I, I yeah, happily, yeah. It's just keep, keep keep me in mind. Keep me in mind. My hair will get out of control again, but keep keep me in mind. Um, okay, so after the treehouse, we worked in a van, and then after the van, uh, I'm, I'm clearly just making you seem uh, very, very exotic here, Ryan. Very exotic. Very <laughs> <laughs> so what, what came after that? <laughs> Though, you know, that was not in, there. So you know, when the pandemic hit, I actually I actually went up to Wyoming. Uh, and I was, I ended up there going there originally for like a few weeks and, uh, and then we stayed there for 13 months. And then that's, that's part of, part of that. There was the, there was the RV purchase, which was, which was like a, like a sidelight from the, from the being in Wyoming. Um, and then when we, we came back to, to the Bay area and, uh, I had moved out to a, to a tree house cause our house there was, was not very big. And so there was a tree house in the backyard that I could have some, some quiet in. And and nobody really realizes in the treehouse. The treehouse might have been like the most office oriented environment. <laughs> that um, was the most professional. Was the treehouse? Yeah, the <laughs> RV was not was not professional. It did not not give the right vibe. Like as I imagine a tree, like am I imagining this correctly? When I think of a true treehouse, like you were climbing up into it, it is off the ground. It is up, and at some point, someone's coming out and yelling at you to come inside and eat your mac and cheese, kind of thing. Well, I mean, no one yell at me because I do important things like this, like have 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 calls with well, you know, right. and, and do podcasts all day long. So um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't have any, any any of those kind of things, but it was in a tree. So there was a little bit of a step up. It was only a few feet off the ground. It wasn't like there was a little bit of ladder, but we're talking like three, four feet off the ground. The lap of luxury, man. The lap it of luxury. Good. You are just you're the you're exotic, as we said. So. I mean, in the midst of all this, you've definitely continued deploying capital. And I mean, it seems like seems like everything is even moving faster since. Uh, well, especially since kind of last time we talked and things, you know, pandemic has become kind of the new normal. But it seems like you guys have made a lot of investments and you've had some SPACs and it seems like things are moving up and to the right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we I, I it'd be interesting to go back and listen to that podcast. Because I mean, we spoke we spoke in June of 2020. I mean, that was that was really you know, things were just starting to thaw out a little bit. It certainly, you know, I think in you know March, April. I mean, anyone who says that they foresaw the the rise of fintech and the explosive growth during that period is just straight lying. Because I think everyone was <laughs> like, oh, "This is terrifying, and it's going to be the end of our businesses." Um, certainly, that's what we thought. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone, maybe we should have seen it, but just the the mass migration to digital tools from in person. And, you know, you, when you're in fintech, when you're in this industry, you kind of think that everyone kind of knows about it. I mean, this is what you're doing. Yeah. It seems like the center of the world. The reality is, is, you know, very few U.S. consumers, fewer globally, were, were engaging with fintech, you know, pre-February of 2020. And... The number of people who are adopting these technologies, and, and you know, even if it's that's even if it's you know going to the J.P. Morgan Chase app for the first time and downloading it, that kind of breakthrough behavior trickles down to everything else, and and so we started seeing this just incredible growth of users, you know, really kind of the middle of 2020, um, as people kind of came back and you know realized they were getting here for the long haul, and I think you know things like PPP, which you know it, you know it seems like so long ago, 
you know, that yeah. created some real opportunities for, for small businesses. There was a lot of stimulus for consumers that, you know, they needed access and, and we started having, you know, and all of those things were really kind of put a lot of wind behind sales of fintech. So it got pretty hot, pretty fast. Um, and yes, as you said, we continued to deploy during that time. We you know, raised, you know, fund and a half now um, via, via COVID. Um, performance has been really strong within the companies and, and it's, it's been, been a pretty great time to be, to be in this industry. Hell yeah, it has. It's such a bizarre time to be in this industry. Have you had the whole, like, I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit in that answer, but have you had more and more of your family members coming to you and asking about like wall street bets and Robin hood and things along those lines? You know, I mean, I hate to say it <laughs> more and more, but so my, my brother, my brother called me last summer. He's like, Hey, you should like buy this NFT, NFT right, right now. Uh, like right now, like I'm like, I, I'm working. Like I can't stop <laughs> everything. If you the irony. Yeah. yeah. I'm doing the FinTech thingy and yeah. uh, I'm busy doing actual finance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm busy doing <laughs> FinTech. Yeah. And so, you know, this, but it like, it like, you know, what he told me to buy explodes it's worth like 15 ETH now. I mean, it like went like crazy. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's funny cause you know, like he, my, my parents are like, you know, buying like crypto and stuff. I mean, it's, it's yeah. gone like beyond of like, you know, what's this FinTech thing to like, you know, let me tell you about this liquidity pool I've invested in. Yeah. So are you just like at Thanksgiving, are you just like holding court? Like all your, your family's just asking all these questions and you're like, well, let me tell you. And then we get to web three and you're like, actually no one knows. Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what your family is like, but, but more of like, Hey, Ryan, you should know more about the thing I know about. I think that's what most ah, people kind of They were roganing. Very few okay. people are like, hey, you're an expert in this. Let me ask you a question. Most people are like, I'm an expert in this. Let me tell you about, you know, it. So uh, it's a much <laughs> more collaborative funny. conversation, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it, that's a that's a good point, actually. It's it's so funny listening to like non I, my family doesn't really pay any attention because they're just a bunch of hippies so I don't really have those conversations during Thanksgiving but like listening to like non financial podcasts you know mm-hmm. I listened to one Rogan episode last week with uh, I think it was Adam Curry and they were trying to talk about just like the financial just, they were trying to talk about stocks and it was <laughs> it was like the most painful explanation of equities and insider trading that I've ever heard in my life to the point of like. I understand how all these scientists are so angry at him because I'm angry at him about his understanding of finance. Like it's right. just hilarious to listen to the world somehow decide that they're all of a sudden experts in this thing that, you know, we've been working in for 10 years or longer and still, at least I don't think I know shit about. Yeah. I mean, you gotta be careful though, man. Cause that oftentimes people who are you know, shaking things up the most, that's what everyone says about. This is true. This is true. So how how are you feeling about Web3 and like NFTs and all that? I actually was pro- I was thinking about just avoiding this conversation with you because you talk about things that are like helpful in the current day, like neobanks and helping people save money. And it's one of the reasons I love you. But fuck it. Let's do it. What are you uh, thinking about that world? Uh, so I th- I think we're seeing we're seeing use cases there for really the first time in crypto. And, yeah. and I think that that's, that's worth paying a lot of attention to. Um, you know, I, I, 
you know, I, I've, 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 I've got a few NFTs in my, my wallet and I understand. I like how you begrudgingly that. admit that. That I was like, that was hard I for you to I say. I understand what's going on in the NFT marketplace, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I think that like broadly the technology, the idea that like we can make a contract and, and, and that that, the tools to make a smart contract and to shift the risk and to move that around, um, around the world is, I mean, that's what derivatives are. Yeah. And I mean, that's literally the largest financial market there is, is the derivative marketplace. And we now have tech and which is argue, which is, I would go ahead and say inarguably probably the least accessible to the average person, probably for really good reason. Um, but it's an incredibly yeah. important piece of piece of plumbing. And is a source of a tremendous amount of profitability for the financial services industry. And we now have basically code that anyone can access that effectively does the same thing and maybe arguably better than some of these. And, and I think that some of these innovations now are definitely worth paying attention to um, because I think that they, as an investor, start to get to the heart of where there's a lot of profitability that's been so far protected from, from, from a technology that I think is probably going to be eroded in the next decade or so. So we're definitely paying a lot more attention to it. We are still looking for like use cases. Like we're not going to go take the fund and buy a bunch of, you know, NFTs and hold on to it. That you don't have 10% of the fund is To be fair, like people yeah. who do that, more props to you, man. That's great. I mean, if, but, uh, uh, but we, you know, we were definitely continuing to look for use cases, looking for businesses, which are, you know, right now that's a lot of the on-ramps, making it easier to access crypto, making it easier to spend crypto. Um, I can see us looking at you know, security tools and things like that, just kind of yeah. reduce some of the, um, some of just the fraud, you know, kind of more nefarious elements of it. Um, but we're still pretty early in our journey. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was doing a good little creep earlier on the portfolio and just kind of like looking at what's been added and, uh, a couple of the things last time I looked had not been acquired. So congratulations on a couple of these. That's pretty cool. Uh, but one of the ones that I noticed was I knew you had invested in point, the kind of luxury debit card. I didn't know about the other point though. I didn't know you had multiple points and the, yeah. the other point seems like it. So for listeners, the tagline is the easiest way to sell a piece of your home. That just like screams smart contract to me. But based on the, what you just told me, it sounds like that's not that that is a that is a actual like regulated financial uh entity or product at the moment and not newfangled whatever yeah i, I think i think that's i think that's fair it was an investment we made pretty pretty early on um i, I you know some of these some some of these technologies would I, I you know you do get pitches like this where you know we're we're doing x physical thing and putting it on the blockchain and that's yeah. That's a little, that's a lot less interesting, I think, than like, you know, what the X thing is. And if blockchain is important to, 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 to executing that, then that's important to executing it. I think in this case, I mean, what point does you point, as you point out, is it allows consumers to sell a piece of their home equity. Um, so it's a way of, it's an alternative to home equity lines of credit, which for the most part are limited to uh, relatively affluent people who, or people and or people who own homes in very expensive uh, areas where, you know, they're taking out $100,000, $200,000 loans. Um, 
you know, and that's not really a market that most Americans can access. And so what, what, what point is doing is allowing people an alternative, which basically, you know, you sell, you know, 10% of your house to point and then point, you know, it takes 10% of the proceeds of it or allows you to buy that home back later, that, that portion back later at a fixed price. So it ends up being, you know, cheaper or comparable to a home equity line of credit if it's, if it's repaid. Um, but then it has a nice benefit of, if, you know, you're doing, say you're doing a renovation on your house, you plan on selling it. Um, it's, it's a great tool there. Yeah, it makes a lot makes a lot of sense as far as that goes. That that was kind of the part that surprised me is it almost seemed like it was more when I dug into it, it was more about home improvement, or at least like that was the way the use case was kind of projected. But it's it seems like there's is it makes sense that it's a common use case, but it seems like there's just there's a lot of really interesting things that you could do with a technology like that. And I've just it seems to me like real estate is gonna be one of the biggest beneficiaries of this whole blockchain thing, you know, as the, that I think that's kind of what you were hinting at is like the, the overlap of the digital and the physical. And when they start to meet with this whole web three thing, that's when, that's when things are going to start to get, get interesting and have the, the trillion number involved in them kind of thing. And you are starting to see some of that. I mean, we're seeing businesses that have a very explicit overlap there. There's a lot of money in crypto that's looking for. It turns out. Yeah, turns out, turns out, hence Miami. Um, so catch catch me up. This I want to do my yearly check in with Ryan on his bullishness on neobanks and specifically neobanks for different portions of society. You are continuously one of the people that is unabashedly bullish, and I'm curious if that is uh, still true at this point. It's it's still it's still true. I would I would say that we're. I think we're. <clears throat> excuse me unabashedly bullish on new use cases and mm. you know the neobank space has created you know has a, a proven you know economic model there um in interchange there is you know a lot of consumer demand for these products and you're competing with incumbents who are you know for the most part pretty fragmented um and at the same time are you know they're competing with where they put branches which we've just discussed doesn't matter anymore. And so it is, I think, I think continues to be a really ripe area of innovation. We, we are, when investing there looking, we are looking for use cases. I mean, I think, you know, there's a design innovation typically in these businesses. And then there's also something that the company is doing differently than what exists in the market. That's, you know, what's going to drive long-term behavior. And so, you know, the, we've done, probably done two new kind of neobanks since, since we spoke last um, one company called Avella, which is focused on couples um, and okay. very early. And the idea being, which is inter interesting thing about this, um, you know, it's a hmm. younger founder and you, how people, and we, well, let me take a step back. Historically, people change their bank account three times. They get one, their parents sign them up for, they, go to college or get a job and need a new one. And then they get married or partner up and, you know, or join it, having opening up a joint account. And you know, historically that's been an opportunity where we, one, one bank will get both, both accounts. Um, and then the fourth is if someone gets like super rich or their life's or, or, you know, they really sure. have times and they get like, either get kicked out of their bank if they're low income or, or they just, you know, move into some sort of elite banking category. Um, but those kind of, that's kind of been, you know, how, how banks have thought about acquisition and acquiring. Um, and what Avella is doing is saying, well, you know, how people are coupling up is quite a bit different these days. I mean, they're, they're oftentimes meeting online. They might start, you know, 
dating and there's a little bit of negotiations happening that's can, can be pretty early in a relationship or like how they're splitting bills. They're often, you know, you might have two people who are both earning income um, and they come up with relatively complex ways of kind of figuring out like how to, how to share things and split things. And so Avella's focused hmm. on that as the initial use case of like, you know, maybe you and I uh, have an arrangement where, you know, you pay the rent and I buy all the groceries. Well, we could have a, we could have a, a, an account that would allow us to kind of automatically do that. And I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about how people are living their lives today and, and also building a really durable relationship that as that, as that relationship matures and grows, um, the account is able to respond to that rather than trying to fit someone into a dynamic that, that might not otherwise make any sense for them. It doesn't make sense for you to open up a joint account with right of survivorship when you've been dating someone for three months, most, most cases. Right. Uh, but also it might not make sense to go close all your accounts and open up a joint account just because you happen to get married. Um, and so what Avella is trying to do is, is to, is to create a product that, that really allows, you know, the bank account to respond to how, how a couple's living their life. That is um, fascinating. This is one of the most beautiful websites I've seen in a long time. And incredible cheers, cheers to the Avella designers. team. Yeah. There's, yeah. There, there's a ton of talent there. It's a, it's a really That's impressive. Team. And like, seems well-timed too. I mean, what honey, honey do I think is the only one left in the market doing this outside of like classical financial institutions, honey, Fi got acquired. Right. So I, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not totally, I, I, I couldn't say for sure. I mean, well, there's a couple of those out there. I mean, uh, uh Zeta, uh, finances is a, is a yeah. product. Aditi's done a great job building that business. Um, so there, I mean, there are other players and I, I, I also think that, you know, for these neo banks, like the banking sector, this isn't going to be winning take winner take all industry. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of different players in it. Um, and I think the market sustains some, some pretty significant businesses um, here yeah. um, that you know, may overlap. Um, and then the other one we've done did recently is is something called Copper, which is acquiring mm. you know students. And so you really focused on you know, kind of like the preteen teenage segment and you know being that first account. And what's interesting about them is they acquire through the schools. Um, and so you know, kind of the view of you know the this the, the the child, you know, needs a way of, you know, get having money, access to money, doing it's still a you know parent-child relationship, and you know, going through the actual you know post-secondary school to acquire that and using the trust of the schools to to get kind of you know embedded in that relationship. Um, so is that like late late high school, or are we talking like the U.S. bank strategy of like give you a free pizza at college and here's your debit card? This is like fourteen-year-olds. Oh, okay. So like green lighty, like yeah, okay. like your first gotcha. account. Like you need to have some sort of way gotcha. of paying for, you know, the pizza on the school trip. Gotcha. In my, in my head, copper was doing bank. Yeah. Banking built for teens. Okay. In my head, they were like going more after the college aged individuals. Um, but that makes sense. So, I mean, one thing that I, you know, having followed copper for a while and followed, you know, a lot, a lot of these companies in your portfolio. Uh, one of the things that I get to ask open and honest questions about now in my, in my current seat that I had to be a little more careful about before is banking as a service and infrastructure. So I'm not asking you to name any names, but I'm curious what kind of advice you generally give to founders, especially cause you're meeting them so early, right? I mean, you're generally probably getting the question of how should I think about a bank partner? Who should I be thinking about as middleware things along those lines? So maybe I'm not asking you to throw anybody under the bus, but I'm just curious kind of what you tell founders. I, uh, you know, it really depends. I mean, I, I, we tell them kind of different things based on, you know, frankly, how much, how much money they have. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
kind of the best indicator. I mean, if you're starting out and just, you know, trying to get, get to market, figure out if there's a, you know, there's a use case for a, a bank for podcasters, you know, something mm-hmm. like a unit or a treasury prime is, 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 a, I mean, their and their offers have gotten a lot better. I mean, I don't want to date your podcast here, but I just saw it, you know, <laughs> that the unit had rolled out. Something I don't know that. what you're about to say, but I love it. Go ahead. Well, I mean, what sometimes you can store these things up, you know, you're going to release this in like 2027 or something. And it's going to be, I'm going to sound like a moron, but no, like I just saw the unit had, uh, had released a, a tool that allows people to kind of get live as quickly as like five minutes on a bank account. Now, obviously that's not going to scale. Right. That's a great way of saying like, Hey, you know, Zach, I created this prod, this pod, this product. It's like a bank for podcasters. allows you to integrate your advertising spend into it. Like we hand it to you and tell me what you think. That's great. That's an incredible innovation. It allows me to mean it's like wireframes for banking, right. um, but it is wireframes for banking. And so I think that if, you know, if now if I've raised fifty million dollars for my bank for podcasters, I, I probably need a different set of infrastructure solutions there. And likely, you know, at that scale, I think the you know, we're still you know generally advising our companies to develop direct relationships with banks, um, even if they're using you know banking as a service yeah. tool, because. You know, at the end of the day, the way the regulations in this country work, I think rightly, is there's only two parties in these relationships. There's a bank and there's the end consumer. And both the fintech and the bank as a service provider are just vendors. And so if you're in the eyes of the regulator, in the eyes of the bank. And so, you know, if you are creating one of these products, it's important that, you know, you have a strong relationship with the bank. They understand what you're trying to do. They understand the compliance universe you're operating in, understand your own processes and procedures and capabilities, the risk factors of your business, all that's helpful because, you know, these are, these are really journeys in building these, these, these neobanks. And, you know, there's these kind of almost very predictable breakpoints that happens as they're growing. And, you know, as an investor, you're like, Hey, like next step is you're going to get hit with like hundreds of thousands of dollars of fraud from, you know, accounts from some other place, like just FYI. And they're like, no, we got a handle on it. Sure enough, three weeks later, they're like, oh, yeah, got hit by fraud. Um, So, you know, you're always kind of evolving these products. And, you know, at the end of the day, they are very complicated. And so, yeah, I mean, to kind of summarize, I think in the early days, like I think the banking as a service providers are getting increasingly capable and, and, and are great places to kind of iterate and learn. I think some of them are looking like they could be places where you could scale. No one's quite done that yet. Um, but I mean, so for the time being, it's definitely, you know, trying to build this relationship directly with some of these FIs. Yeah. So do you kind of, do you, do you try and help founders understand that maybe it's a little bit of a, a red flag if that middleware provider or the banking as a service provider is trying to maybe obfuscate the relationship with the bank, uh, actively? I've noticed in again, not to name any names. I'm just going to say that 8 million times during this fucking podcast. Uh, but I've noticed that as a thing in the industry where, you know, it's like, cause, cause what you, that's exactly what I would tell everyone is like the bank. I mean, you can't outsource risk, right? So you need to get yeah. to know your banker. Um, but I think a lot of founders just take the, take the word of the banking as a service salesperson as gospel, um, because they're busy and they're founders. Um, but what do you do you generally say run the opposite direction or do you say just go around them and find that relationship anyway or how do you how do you advise in that situation i yeah i i would uh, i yeah there, there 
they, I, again, I, I think there's a, you know, a couple players there who have done a really good job. And, um, and I, I, I think it, I can't imagine that there, that, that, that the, you know, the, the companies that are actually having success with banking as a service are doing that. So yes, if I, if, if I had a founder, I was like, Oh, I'm talking to blank and they won't tell me who the bank is. I'd be like, well, you're not talking to anybody. I mean, that's like me right. selling you, I don't know, podcasting microphones. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I was, supply of them. Right. Yeah. Like, I get <laughs> I was, I guess I was kind of more referring to the idea of like the unwillingness to make it like, they'll tell you who the bank is, but then they won't be as willing to make the intro or willing to like help you build a relationship with that the would bank. be a real red flag to me, I think. And, and I think that if you're a founder, like, that would be a non-starter. It's because it's just not, you get to think about, you think about what you're trying to do here. You know, yeah. You're trying to build a product that serves millions of people. And frankly, none of the banks that even, that, that offer banking services that, that like support banking service have millions of customers. So you are trying <laughs> to build something that's bigger than the bank you're working with and bigger than the bank as a service provider. And so I, that's why I think, you know, you, the ambition of the founder needs to meet the match, the ambition of the idea. And, mm. and so, you know, if that's what you're trying to do, then absolutely. You're going to need to, you're going to need to have a tech stack and I'd consider the banking as a service provider and the bank to be part of that tech stack that's going to scale and support you. Um, you know, if it's, you know, that, that being said, there are, there are increasingly, you know, there are a lot of other players looking to kind of expand the banking that aren't neobanks. You know, there might be brands and people trying to do loyalty and rewards programs. And yeah. you know, it might not be as big of a deal. Like if someone's putting $25 on your, your, on your, you know, blank branded debit card so that they can mostly spend in your store. I don't, you know, but that's a very different thing than if right. you're trying to build you know, a bank for all of the queer identifying people in the country. Like yeah. They, it's like, they don't, right, right, they don't right. infrastructure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like building the Southwest credit card is, you know, co-branded credit card compared to what pedals trying to do is two very different, very different things. Exactly. Very different undertakings. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I guess you guys have done a good amount of a good amount of, uh, infrastructure investing, but w- it, would any of it be considered banking as a service? Like one, one of my favorite ones that's infrastructure related that you guys have done is Anvil. I find that to be a, a fascinating one. And I just love the founding team. But is there, is there anything, cause I don't know the portfolio that well, is there anything yeah. that you would consider in that realm or are you thinking well, about I think certain, deeper? Yeah, like I actually blocks? Mean, no, I, I definitely, I think we think about it as, as, as kind of building blocks, you know, of, of different parts, um, mm-hmm. you know, so probably the best example, the closest is going to be reserve trust. This is a, this yeah. is a Colorado licensed trust that has access, you know, provides access to the Fed payment system. So it's a very unique, um, unique institution kind of in the U S regulatory environment. Um, so, you know, deal we had done with QED, uh, all two years ago now, and they're really you know, a better way of providing payments and banking to, um, um, to the, to, uh, or ba- payments to kind of, I want to say like, um, uh, you know, businesses are doing a lot of payment volume. Um, because they can give you direct access there and, and really bring that compliance piece much closer to your operations of the financial of, of, of the, of the fintech. Um, and so, you know, in as much as it, you know, Stripe is banking as a service, I think, you know, kind of reserve trust is in the same boat. Um, gotcha. 
We did a deal recently, a company called Power, which is very early, you know, still kind of flying under the radar a bit, um, but they have a website, so they're not that under the radar. Um, and they, uh, they're, you know, trying to, you know, kind of think about, you know, credit card as a service and, and really, you know, so doing what you've, we've done, you've seen kind of on the debit side, but more on the, um, on the credit card piece of it. Um, so certainly, you know, those are, um, those are both kind of, you know, banking as a service kind of infrastructure types of plays. Um, mm-hmm. but not on the, not on, not on the consumer deposit side. I think the consumer deposit side is one area where, you know, so far we had, we had kind of resisted. We might have been, we might be wrong. Who knows? Um, um, but that one just has always seemed challenging at the scale. For us. Well, you, and you've also made a lot of investments that will kind of like go in the side door. I don't know the right way to phrase it really, but like you've made a lot of investments in these neobanks that are, that are betting on that outcome in the, like at least in the macroeconomic, you know, future. And I would think that that actually makes sense for portfolio construction to some degree where you're thinking about like the consumer facing companies are the ones you're thinking of as the, the deposit builders. And then you can kind of almost balance that out by the way you just explained kind of the, the infrastructure strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I mean, the rising tide is going to kind of lift all boats. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I don't think I. It's it's almost you know I. It's easier, I think, as an invest. Well, you know, we're so early in meeting yeah. companies, like you know, we're really betting on founders and vision and the kind of early team. Um, and I think that on the you know on the direct to consumer side for whatever reason, it's going to easier for us to understand. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it, it's as, if it's, there's as much thought behind it as, as maybe we're making out to be. I mean, it's, I I think I find it easier to, to meet a founder who's like, Hey, I want to, I think it's, you know, completely effed up that like queer people in this country have a really bad banking experience. I know exactly how to make it better. And I have this incredible background of you know having built and scaled products for the queer community and i've got this team i put together and we just have a vision and a lot of people are attracted to the vision and like we're going to do it you know that and that's basically you know what what rob curtis at daylight is like yeah. as a founder and 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 you know billy's billy his co-founder kind of shares that same that same vision and attitude and that that's easier for me to kind of understand that and get behind it and, and mm-hmm. figure out how it can be helpful um than some other parts of the market. It, and and I, I think that that's probably as big of a driver of why we've kind of focused on the consumer side rather than the infrastructure side and kind of how the neobanks have evolved. Yeah, it's fascinating how you go after both ends of the market too. Cause I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking at the P's in the portfolio right now, right? And on the left side of my screen, I see points, which Patrick has done an amazing job of building like this, oh, just beautiful luxury. Yes. Uh, just, you know, you want to be associated with it, right? Like he's, he's built that, that kind of that passion and that love for the brand. And then, you know, I scoot over too. And then there's Propel, which like, I mean, still great design. I'm not saying they're not that, but it's not designed for that. Right. At the end of the day, like Jimmy and team, we're going after a very different set of humans and standing in grocery stores, asking them doing customer discovery, like, you know, just in Brooklyn walking through bodegas. Like it's, it's fascinating how they can, they can serve such an incredibly different set of humans, but be driven by 
the same kind of emotions. Like they get themselves out of the bed every morning for similar reasons. I think, I mean, I think Patrick, both Pat, Jimmy obviously is doing amazing things for the world, but I think some people would say that why does the world need a, you know, luxury debit card? And I think there's a lot of responsibility associated with it. And it's actually a very fucking net positive for the world. So it's just interesting that like one's kind of for the wealthy one's kind of not, but they drive yeah, the same and, direction. Yeah. Then, and you know, I think, What's interesting is, you know, I met both those founders you know, very early in their in their journeys. And there's a lot more commonality there. I think there's very different people. Uh, very. Sure. Um, but both are very driven by kind of an end goal that has honestly very little to do with money. Um, it, it, it's almost more of like, you know, I, I this problem needs to be solved and i'm like singularly focused on solving this problem and like if you're not going to help me solve the problem then like i i just need to move on and go to the next person and you know so you know for jimmy you know i think you know i i invested in that business when i was with the financial solutions lab but uh, it was now the financial health network and jp morgan and you know he had like had like a thousand dollars in the bank and it was a very, you know, like eight people who would use this like a food stamp sign up app. And, you know, his goal, you know, he wanted to build a startup. He think he could do that, but it was more important, I think, to figure out how to solve this problem for him than to build mm -hmm. a startup. And so the startup kind of follows that, 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 that DNA. And he, his singular focus on the customer it has allowed him to evolve the product into a business that's actually doing incredibly well now. And, and he's, he, I mean, he serves like a quarter of the households who are using food stamps, not the people, households in this country who are food stamps, yeah. which is a gigantic number, unfortunately. Um, and and then you you know you flip to 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 Patrick at point, and a lot of the same motivation. And I think I think he's really driven by the idea that he can make like a better card experience. And 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 it, it you know I, I think when you we joke that like when. You know, when Patrick was born, he came out. He's like, just the first words were metal debit card because he's just like, so focused. <laughs> like, and and he has a lot of good reason to. I think he thinks that it's kind of screwed up that these you know credit card companies charge six hundred odd dollars for something that's like not a very good product. And I think he, I think he's got, you know, he's driven by a desire to really see his vision to fruition. Um, and you're right, there is there is a lot of benefit of making our financial services more industry, more efficient and cutting out a lot of the fat and, and innovating on a product that frankly, a lot of people spend a lot of money on um, and they're not happy with it. Yeah. It's yeah. I'm going to, I will get frustrated and then uh, steam will shoot out of my ears if I keep going down that rabbit hole. So let, let's pivot. Uh, but love to Patrick and Jimmy. Love you guys. So one of the things that I wanted to have you explain to me uh, <laughs> is one, how to pronounce this word. And then two, what you think the future of it holds. So is it Fritch or is it Frick? F-R-I-C-H? Fritch. Fritch. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about 
obviously you have you have some bullishness about the world of uh, of <laughs> social money and the I and Gen Z especially being interested in that. So tell me, I, I just like got in that website. And I was like, oh god, I want I want Ryan to tell me this story. What's going on here? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a really early business, uh, and we had gotten connected to them uh, by a couple of the founders that I, you know, had a lot of respect for it, both kind of independently pinged me and said, and very different people, like completely different. Hmm. Like, Oh, you should meet these, you should meet these two women. They got this interesting product. And it's, you know, the concept of it's, I mean, it's like a PFM app, but the concept is like upside down. From I think how pretty much everyone had thought about PFM before. So most people are thinking about, um, you know, personal financial management, oh, I'm saving for some long-term goal. I want to save for a house. I want to save for retirement. Right. The average 21 year old is not saying I want to save for a house or for retirement. There are some small percentage of incredibly responsible 21 year olds who are doing that, but most yeah. of them, and this is kind of the insight of the founders of fridge are actually saving for Friday. Like they want ah, to go out with their friends okay. yeah, and go yeah. out and like do the fun thing their friends are doing. Right. And so they need to make better, better decisions, like on a day to day basis. Like they don't need to like, you know, I hate to use the example of like, you know, not get coffee. That's stupid. But like, you know, probably not eat, maybe not eat out lunch so that they can yeah. have an extra $15 to spend on Saturday night when they're going to go with their friends to some bar or something in, you know, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And their app is like singularly focused on that. And the other thing that's really interesting about this team is they were both, they're both models, like high fashion models, which is an industry you can start out on at a really young age. And they intuitively both understand kind of how to sell luxury and how huh. to sell kind of an identity, an identity. Um, it just from something like you imagine you've been immersed in it for, your, for most of your adult life, you're going to kind of have a bunch of skills that like you otherwise wouldn't like, you know, like. They don't need help on thinking how to build their social media strategy. They already have tens of thousands of people following them anyway. Um, right. And so they bring a tremendous amount of just kind of just skills that are not typically found in startups to this problem. And their growth has been just like crazy. I mean, it's like crazy. I don't like you get these updates and like all these people. I mean, because I look at the website and like this isn't something I'm going to use, but like that's not really my job as an investor. My job is to yeah. understand what the problem the founder is trying to solve and are they suitable to solving it? Do they have a vision for how that's going to work? And does that vision make coherent sense? And this is one where it makes, it makes a lot of coherent sense. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, they've had a lot of early traction. They're magnets for talent and interesting people coming to, to, to work with them. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's a very different take, but they also move very quickly and are always thinking of, you know, kind of what, whatever's like, you know, what's in vogue, what's kind of the messaging and, I think as far as a brand evolution, it's certainly one of the fastest evolving. I mean, this and, you know, kind of point and how they thought about it are you know, kind of in the same category. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I got on the Fritch website the first time and it kind of felt like when I got on TikTok the first time where I was just I like, asked, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get it, but I don't feel like I'm supposed to admit that I don't get it. <laughs> You yeah, know, but let me just act like, yeah, social investing and social money. I want to talk to everybody about my money. That's how millennials work. Totally. But it's just, it's so interesting that Gen Z, like, I mean, it's, it is genius, right? Like the, I love the copy of being broke ain't cute. That's just so fucking funny to me. Uh, but it's so different than anything that I would interact with, you know? And it makes me like, I turned 30 and now I'm like, I, okay. I mean, I guess I just am not going to be able to pick winners for the rest of my life. Like I just don't get it. 
I feel so old, Ryan. Yeah, you know, you know, the best piece of advice I ever got was you guys kind of suspend disbelief. You can't focus on what you think. What you think doesn't matter. You got to listen to what someone else is trying to say. And then try to think of this, what, there's, does what they think make any sense? Like, if I use their logic, does that make sense? Any doubt. So this is like the opposite of your Thanksgivings, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is hard. <laughs> I'm not intuitively that kind of person. I'm tendentially somebody yeah. who tells you what they what they think about things. But like, yeah, you, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I can do it. Because I, mean, I realize that I'm like bad at it. So it's like I just don't do it. A good, a good lack of confidence is great for self-confidence when it comes to these things. It's yeah. knowing that we don't know shit is very helpful. Yeah. Speaking of which, actually not really speaking of which, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the, I, I kind of feel like this is almost like perfectly timed in some ways because this subject that I'm about to bring up, which is SPACs kind of felt like it was picking up a lot of momentum probably when we were last talking, or at least like it was. I don't know. Maybe it was like the web three of that moment or something. Right. Or I don't know that or wall street bets or something was, was in that realm. What? And I mean, obviously Dave is one of the more successful and impressive companies in your portfolio. What do you think about the whole narrative, the whole unfolding of this SPAC mania that we've seen over the last, however many months, or I don't know, even a couple of years now. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, I, I, you know, I, I, to be totally clear, I mean, I'm speaking from general, like a generalized view of kind of observing it, um, not anything specific about the experience of, of Dave, which frankly, I, I wasn't that, that close to. And one of the interesting things about, about the SPAC process is kind of once it happens, there's actually very little information um, because it does become, you know, kind of in this, this quasi you know, pu- public kind of quiet period. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you kind of any, anything particularly insightful about that, about that process. Um, no, I didn't even know that though. So that's, that's interesting. I didn't know that there was kind of like a a quiet period. Yeah. You're merging with a publicly traded company. Right. So once you kind of announce the intent to merge, I mean, it's just like anything else. I mean, you you can't, you know, there's a, there's a stock that's trading out there. Yeah. It's logical. I just didn't Um, think about it. (laughs) uh, And so, but you know, I, I think that, so I think there's a few things. One you know, the market always has kind of opportunities that it creates. And, and, and so like, you know, this, the SPAC is a tool in kind of the toolkit of the market. And I'm not sure, you know, I think for a company that's, you know, when it, you know, kind of the height of this thing, when you're looking to kind of go public pretty quickly and, you know, it provides a lot of cash in the company's balance sheet, especially if there's a, you know, a pipe associated with it. And yeah. so it can be a significant, you know, advantage. And then once you're a publicly traded company, it's actually quite a bit easier to raise capital. Um, and so, you know, I, I think for, for some companies, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I like anything, and maybe your analogy that kind of the web, web three things is might, might prove prescient, but you know, it's, it doesn't mean it makes a lot of sense for everybody. And so when, yeah. you know, when the public markets, you know, when you go public, you know, the, it's time, kind of proof, proof time. And so, you know, there isn't as much margin for error there. there it's, it's a very, you know, it's kind of a cut and dry type of market. And they're, and they're also at the whims of a lot of other things, just general investor sentiment, interest rates. I mean, China, I mean, you name it. And so um, I do think it's important to kind of disaggregate that like, you know, some of these companies, you know, might not have been great companies. And they went public via SPAC right. because that was the best outcome for it. Some of yeah. them, this might've been the best situation thing they could have done. And maybe they're going to be proven to be really durable companies. And then, you know, others, it just wasn't appropriate for at all. 
And yeah. I think, you know, there's been a number over the last several months where it looks like they've maybe they're, you know, called off their, their, their mergers or they've, they've kind of delayed it. And I suspect a lot of that has to do with, you know, kind of this SEC focusing on, on the space more and, you know, trying to maybe kind of clean up some of the, um, clean up some of the, maybe the bad actors in it. Um, but also it's due to the fact that the market changes, Yeah, uh, you know, public market, every other public market. I mean, if you look at the public market fintech companies are a lot, you know, the end of in December, or early this year, I mean, it's been kind of a bloodbath across the board. And so, you know, that affects every other asset. I mean, it, it affects the private market, it affects VC funding and certainly, in the yeah. fact, you know, how companies go public. Yeah. I find it hilarious that it's so rampant. Like the, the overarching just sell off of even like block, you know, it's like, really, you think that Jack left Twitter and is putting all of his time into this company, rebranded it, put all of these things together, a holding company and it's, and it's trading down. This is how we think of Jack Dorsey now. Like we just overarchingly are just going to sell off the entire market. I find it, I find it hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it, I think probably, I don't, I couldn't tell you how the public markets work, but I, I do well, think I mean, that they, neither can I, right? Like, no, yeah, <laughs> let's, be let's be very clear that none of us know what the fuck we're talking no, about. Not. And if anyone does, they're fucking, but, they're you know, lying. Things change. I mean, like 2020 early, late from like middle of 2020 until all, but like the last quarter of last year, these stocks were on a tear. Yeah. You know, we, we have avoided a bunch of lending businesses on the assumption which was true until two years ago that like the public markets didn't value lending businesses very highly. Yeah. Maybe a, a firm goes public and it like just takes off and lo and behold, we're wrong. So, you know, it, it, I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of the amalgamation of like all the investor sentiment all over the world. And it, it's really hard to predict. And I, I think, you know, you can't focus too much, especially as a private market investor on the, the day-to-day machinations of that, because at the end of the day, what matters is these companies having products that people care about, people use and are growing. And, yeah. you know, if that's happening, you know, over time, you know, price should go up. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also like the market seems to really value novelty, especially right now in the world of Robin hood and, you know, trend chasing and everything else. Like what, what, even just like watching, I have a really good buddy of mine here in Kansas city that runs a hedge fund who has taken a very large position in afterpay. And it is a very illiquid stock that has done incredibly well for him, but it's just, it's like, because they're Australian, they went public at the point when basically a firm would have been like raising their series a or something. So it's just, it's a, I don't know. It's a fascinating world, which actually reminds me, I wanted to ask you about a tweet that I saw this is, I just went, we just went from public markets all the way to seed, uh, <laughs> going through the, the full spectrum. Um, but I saw Sheil Monat say something on Twitter. I think it was a couple of weeks ago about the increased dollar amount that YC is going to start giving to companies and how he thinks, or at least he thought, I don't, I mean, it's Sheil. So he takes new information and actually changes his opinion because he's a good VC, but at that point, what he said was basically that he thought he was going to have a hard time getting the amount of ownership in the company that he would actually want or need to get to validate the investment and to validate the logic behind actually pulling the trigger. I'm curious, you've made some investments in some YC companies. And from what I know, you're probably at those YC demo days pretty consistently. What do you think about all that? I mean, 
well, I, yeah, I like, I like, like Sheila a lot where you know, he's a great consumer for a friend. Uh, I, we have, I have a different investing strategy than him and Jake do. And so it doesn't really affect me quite as much. You know, our, our, our strategy is, you know, we're typically starting out really small. Our initial check size is about a quarter million dollars. Um, and then we're looking to really build on our positions into companies that take that, that are taking off really fast. And so like, we'll go, yeah. up, we'll go up to about 2.5 million dollars. Um, kind of by the A, which is a pretty rapid kind of scaling of the position. Um, and that allows us to do a couple of things. Um, a, we can invest, you know, really early uh, in businesses where maybe you couldn't park that much capital, where they just, it doesn't make sense for them to take it. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, it also allows us to, frankly, p- kind of pay higher prices because what we're really looking for is kind of, the, we're looking for that Delta to have, you know, the, the alpha that occurs when we, when you find something that really takes off and like, and it does really well. And, you know, yeah. best, the strategy is reliant on us being incredibly helpful and very, very close to our founders. Um, you know, that is not, that is, that is not a common kind of seed stage. That's not a common venture strategy, honestly. Like it's, it's a, and, and, um, and it's one we but have. Ryan, everyone's value add. How, how could that be true if everyone's adding value at the rate that they are? Well, no, I don't mean that people aren't value. Add. That's, <laughs> that's I'm fucking I mean, in the sense of like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to I'm not going to buy a bunch of ownership in this company. Like if I have an ownership driven strategy, which most VC funds are, and that's kind of the conventional yeah. wisdom that like you want to buy no. as much as you can, as quickly as you can. Um, you know, if YC is taking a bigger chunk of the there's only so much ownership in a company that makes it really hard for a fund that's very, it's an ownership driven fund, like you know, Better Tomorrow's is mostly an ownership driven fund. It makes it harder for, for them to be able to get that ownership in a deal consistently. Now, I have no doubt that they're going to continue to do a great job and find really good companies. Uh, but I think that that's probably, you know, I, you know not, to, not to comment on the impetus of, 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 of Shield's tweet. I think that's probably what he's referring to is it just makes it's going to make it harder for, for seed investors writ large who want to come yeah. in, and, you know, buy 20% of a company to make it harder for them to do that. If the company's already agreed to sell, you know, probably effectively something like 12 to 15% of the company to YC. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, I don't, I'm not, I, I'm, I, you know, the, the, the challenge is, is that, you know, YC is a, it has a powerful position in the market and, right. You know, there are a lot of investor and, and frankly, like there's a lot of players in it. This has become very competitive. You know, when we, when we started this company in 2018, there really wasn't anyone doing even like dedicated seed investing in fintech at scale. And now, you know, there's you know at least four of us who do a pretty good job. Um, um, and dozens of others who are kind of, you know, kind of coming in and oftentimes have strategies, which are, you know, get a little bit of everything. Um, and if you go, you know, YC's kind of been like that for the last couple of years anyway, where it's been very difficult to show up at these YC companies, especially if you're waiting till demo day and get anything more than a couple hundred thousand dollars of allocation. Um, so I think it's, you know, a little bit of a reflection of the market. It's, it's more, yeah. it's more competitive and it's harder to find these. And, you know, if you're really, if you're really looking to go and find these diamonds in a rough, you have to hustle and you, you're going places other people aren't going to go find deals and you know you're meeting founders earlier and earlier um and I think do you think it's a net probably. positive for founders overall just like the larger i mean i guess it's almost just a matter of like more capital more companies more innovation it's just a kind of a flywheel but at that I mean, stage do you think it's a net positive it's a net po- well it's a net positive at, at the 
uh, it's hard, really hard to, it's certainly never been a better time to be a founder, right? Than right now. Like there's, there's a lot more capital, especially if you're, you know, if you're a pedigreed founder, you're just coming yeah. out of a great you know company or your second time founder, like yeah. phenomenal fundraising environment for you. The yeah. reality is most founders aren't like that. Like that's one of the things that YC does. It's so, that was so revolutionary early on and they still do a really good job at it is finding people who don't have that pedigree and backing them. And, yeah. you know, for as many companies that, you know, come out of YC that have, that are these crazy rounds and they're super competitive and everyone's fighting to get a little sliver of it. There's more where that company was out raising money and trying to get the attention of investors for years. And then YC does a deal and all it's all of a sudden, you know, hot. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that like the funding market's been, it's very favorable to a subset of founders who have access to it, who know people and can do really well. The trade-off is the funding market is really good for those founders and it's still really hard to build a business. And at some point it still becomes really, really hard. And I think what's happened now is that that break point has moved quite a bit later. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time with our you know, kind of growth stage companies because, you know, the proof points have become really extreme. And, and, you know, there's a lot as, as you put yourself in the founder shoes, we, we have a company where we were the first investors in, in the summer of 2018 and just and raised in October at a billion dollar valuation. And, you Whoa. know, they <laughs> I wasn't expecting that to be the end of that sentence, but I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. In the and current world. doing really well, but you know, put yourself in the shoes. Just imagine during the course of the pandemic, you've gone from having a company of like two or three people. To having to manage like an organization of 150 people across the country and hit the expectations of a company that's worth that much. Um, it's a lot of stress. And and so I don't I don't think it's ever easy to be a founder. Um, parts of it might become a little bit easier. But sure. Yeah. Import portions of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We print enough capital, the capital part gets uh, gets a little bit easier. But the building a business part, turns out that's still hard as shit. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> we'll leave that there because, again, I uh, will digress into talking shit and I do that enough as it is. So we can we can just avoid that part. Um, I'm, wa I'm wondering how much time are you spending or how open are your founders with you about kind of how they're going about building a, a couple things, one building these remote cultures and two, kind of handling their own mental health. Like, are you finding people starting to be a little bit more vulnerable and maybe, I don't know, maybe Ryan Falvey isn't their first like call when they're, when they're, you know, in the fetal position crying at the end of the day, oh, or yeah, maybe yeah. you are, I don't know. I'd, a, I'd probably well, call you that a guy you're like, it's, you're saying I'm not, I'm not the, I don't have the, the empathy. No, or? I'm just saying like, I would probably, like, I'd probably take a moment, you know, I'd probably like, you know, get a Kleenex out. I'd handle the tears and then I'd call you. Um, but I would imagine you're getting some of these calls. I think that, yeah. Uh, so you do two, two parts of the question. Uh, as far yeah. as building a team and a culture, it's extraordinarily difficult to do that remotely. And, and especially if you didn't set out to do that. I mean, and so we've actually for the last, I think three co every cohort since COVID hit, we've actually had the head of remote from GitLab come and like talk to the founders. It's, oh, that's awesome. Um, 
because it's it's like no one set out to do this. Like it's one thing if yeah. like, oh, I'm going to start a remote culture. I'm going to build all these tools and processes and procedures to do that. It's like completely different than one day you just can't go back to your office and also like can never do it again. And also then hired like a hundred people in this environment. And, like, now you're like, <laughs> and then here's another 20 million to hire another 300. It's, I mean, it's then, super complicated yeah. and hard. No one, yeah. and literally no one knows how to do it. So we've brought that, we've, 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 we've brought you know, Darren in to do that a couple of times. He's phenomenal. He's an incredible resource and he's done an amazing job. And obviously that company's done a fantastic job of, of, you know, pioneering kind of remote culture, but they'll be the first to tell you that like they sought out to pioneer remote culture. It wasn't like they right. ended up on the moon. They planned. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they started from first principles, they, not yeah, from like, first oh, yeah, pandemic. Well, first yeah. to rocket, and then we're going to go, you know, orbit. And, uh, and so, yeah. you know, that, that's been a big piece of it. I, I think it, I don't want to say it's gotten easier. I think it's gotten used to it being hard. Um, I do worry about, you know, the, you have a lot of companies that are, I, I think, kind of thin you know, out there in the market now, as far as culture and connectivity. And it's kind of easy to be all on the same team when like you're on a rocket ship and it's like you're getting yeah. richer every six months. It's a lot harder yeah. to do that when you feel like you're kind of floundering. And so, you know, we'll, it, you know, I'm hopeful we start bringing people back, back in in person. Cause I suppose these teams are oftentimes startups are generally very young employees it's important yeah. to, you know, building skills, to seeing how to evolve, to grow, to camaraderie. I mean, it's very lonely, I think. And so um, yeah. I think that's been extremely difficult. And it's been, it's obviously been very difficult for the founders. And I think one of the main things we do with, you know, our cohorts is kind of create some community and sense of, you know, sense of like, you know, kind of a shared kind of identity among them. And, and it's been harder for us to do. You know, we've, we've managed to do a couple in-person events over the last two years. And when we've done it, yeah. people love it. They're like, this is great. Like, yeah. before, and then, you know, there's like, I'm the crop and you can't, um, it's crazy. So, man. It's like, I saw a human in person today. I think this is the happiest I've been in my whole life. Yeah. You know, it's like the bar has shifted it, so dramatically. It, it, totally. And, and so you kind of need to find ways to do that. Um, but yeah. you know, as far as, you know, you know, the last couple of years for founder, I think it's been, you know, first off being a founder of a startup is generally a very lonely experience. It's really hard. You know, most people don't think you're going to be successful. You're dealing with all the problems and you're internalizing a lot of it. Um, and doing that, you know, during COVID when many people also have had, you know, the personal cost of this pandemic on people, it, it you know, yeah. it's really easy to ignore. And if you're not, if it's not you, you're not, you're not seeing these people every day, but, you know, you see it in the companies. I, I see it in our, you know, you pointed to the number of exits and acquisitions we had. I mean, that's a lot of acquisitions and they all happened in a pretty tight time frame. And I, I don't think that all of those were unrelated to the fact that it just became a lot more difficult and a lot less fun to be a founder uh, yeah. in mid 2020. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a tough time. So I, yeah, I think I, yeah, I, you know, we're not mental health professionals and I, I don't have any, you know, I, but you know, it's certainly been difficult. Obviously, Yeah. It's interesting. The juxtaposition of like capital is like, you know, flying from the raining down from the rafters. And in some ways it's easier to your point earlier, it's easier than ever to be a founder. But then on the other side of it, like you need the emotional fortitude of, 
I don't fucking know. Actually, I have literally no idea how I would create an analogy for the amount of emotional fortitude that you need because it's just so, I mean, almost presidential level emotional fortitude and belief in what you're doing because to your point, nobody else is believing in it. And some of the people that have made some really like one of my favorite humans um, that I've gotten to know really well over like last six months is Kristen Anderson from catch. And she made a decision as the CEO, like we are going back to the office. We are going to be based in New York. And this is going to be a company that functions inside of one of these places where we sit together and work. And that has been like very controversial and also has made it pretty hard for her to recruit and easier in other ways. But, you know, I mean, I feel again, like a boomer where I'm sitting here thinking like, good God, I miss the office. And I miss like sitting around other people working and working aside like next to them it's yeah (laughs) yeah i don't i don't i don't think it's coming back no no i think it's gonna be not not even like some miniature version of it you think like the you think the whole thing's flipped on some some sort of hybrid version of it but no i mean you you have a situation like you have a just put yourself a company that started with like five six people and now they have at end of the pandemic, 150 people. They need to hire. They need to grow. Like, I, you know, I certainly I have a lot of respect for, for Kristen too, and I think she's building a phenomenal, you know, company. And it seems like a great culture at Catch. Um, but it's you know that that might not work for every company. And uh, oh, I agree with that. And yeah. So no, I think it's sitting there like you have a rock star hire who. Hey, you can access because you're in New York before and maybe they're sitting in San Diego now and they right. could never, they didn't want to leave San Diego because they've got family commitments and all sorts of other things or, and yeah. certainly technical talent. I mean, I know you spend a lot of time yeah. around engineers, but a lot of them don't really like the idea of sitting in an office and like having to go there and be there all yeah. the time when they're just sitting on a computer and coding. Like there's a lot of people who just like the, the being home and kind of picking their own hours. And so I think it's really hard to put that genie kind of, back in the bottle i think it's out and it's going to be out and if you're sitting there competing with google or facebook or coinbase and they're like hey we're yeah. going to work four days a week and we're going to have four weeks <laughs> off and you can work wherever you want we'll pay the exact same strategy and you're like no 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 you're working 80 hours a week here butts in the seats you better have a really yeah. good company you better have a really good yeah. company Doing yeah, really that, well. that Ehrlich Bachman, uh, <laughs> I will be the first one here at the, at the, the strike of 10 AM and I'll be the last one to leave right at two. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. I, part of me, I, the, I'm realizing that my dream is just like continue to live in Kansas city and then fly to these cities and get to, you know, experience like now that I'm working for money, 2020 flying to New York, you know, once a, once a month, like it's, I, I don't know the right drug to compare it to, but it's definitely a drug. Like I, I haven't gone for two months and I feel like I'm like fiending to get back to the energy that is New York, yeah. but also I could not, could not live there. And there's no way I could have worked at bond had, COVID not well, actually I signed my, I saw, I signed the job, uh, offer right before COVID hit. So I guess that's not true, but I don't know. It just, it seems like it opens up some really, really good stuff for, for folks that value quality of life, but also want to be ambitious, you know? Yeah, it, I, I totally. And, and you know, your grass is always greener. I mean, 
you're giving yeah. money 2020 opened up an office in Kansas City and made you go sit there five days a week, you'd be completely over it in like Yeah, this is a fact. This is this is a fact. But the other point, I mean, the other thing is the economic, you know, the 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 impact on the commercial real estate market as a result of all this, right? Like the we work has had a very interesting uh, uh, lifespan, but if there was ever a time f- to be bullish on them or bullish on, you know, whatever sort of fragmented co-working space, like this is probably the time yeah. I'm n- noticing a lot of people spending entirely like, the amount of money people spend on a conference room nowadays blows the fuck out of my mind. <laughs> it's like, I think we spent like, Four hundred dollars like, for one hour in a WeWork in New York a few weeks back, oh. or no, uh, a few months back when I was at Bond. But yeah, it's just like it doesn't make any sense. Um, okay, so it is. Yeah, we're coming up on time. So you you've you've referenced a couple little little nuggets here about the actual program of the mm-hmm. studio um and you explained it on the last podcast but i yep. imagine a number of things have changed and also i just want to give i as you know love the program so i want to give you a chance to do a little, little commercial so catch catch me up on like what's new and then catch listeners up on you know maybe some of just the basics of of what it is and what y'all do yeah so you know our our models you know, we're investing year round so like there's we're always investing we're always meeting founders and generally, we're we're investing on kind of the you know, market terms. We we we'll go along with the lead. We'll be the lead. We'll be the only investor. We kind of make our decision again, really based on kind of the founder team idea and kind of what they're doing. Um, and then what we'll do is kind of batch up our investments in these these cohorts of you know the most recent one is about twelve companies, somewhere between kind of you know eight and twelve companies. Um, and then for about six months, we you know, work really hands on to kind of systematically connect them to the broader financial services ecosystem. Which you know we think of really having is you know five constituent parts. So there's potential partners. So you know you know banks, insurance companies, payment companies, the bigger fintechs. The most part, like it's impossible to build a product kind of in isolation. You know you usually need to you know if you're touching money in any way, shape, or form, you need a partner for that. Um, and so we want to kind of bring those partnerships to our companies really quickly, really efficiently. Um, if they need to have, if they're doing something in a regulated space, we'll want to connect them to regulators and policymakers. Kind of the seed stage is ironically one of the only stages you can really do that productively. Um, you're still kind of a plucky. Expand on that. That's in, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think that's a counterintuitive thing that listeners would be interested in. Yeah. So when you're a founder of a company of like three people, you're you're like a plucky entrepreneur that buys a spirit of American entrepreneurialism, and it's like everyone yeah. can agree that that's great. When you're like yeah. raise like fifty million dollars for your like quasi lending business that like may or may not be regulated, you, you look like a rapacious capitalist, and so it's yeah. very difficult to <laughs> it's very difficult to go up show up at that point in DC and be like, hey, I'm an unregulated entity, and I'd love to talk to you guys about what I'm doing. Not yeah. Brian Armstrong today versus Brian Armstrong 15 years ago. Yeah, Brian <laughs> Armstrong, yeah. you know, circa 2012. It's like, oh, cool, crypto thing. You're probably not going to work. I don't care, but nice to meet you. Good luck with the business. And he's good. He's yeah. done. He kind of knows yeah. the people. He makes some quick phone calls and, you know, saves him a lot of hires as he gets bigger. Um, and I think that, like, you know, it's it's helpful because you can also surf, I mean, being serious, you can surface issues. You know, generally, yeah. you know, regulars and policymakers act their they're normal people. They they want to be helpful. They like to hear what's happening, what's cool and interesting. Yeah. And it's just much easier when you're early to do that than when you're late. And it's like a my partner Tyler has the analogy of like a rocket. Like it's really difficult to change the direction of a rocket by like one degree once it's flying. 
But like when it's on the ground, it's pretty simple. And so, you know, when you're early, you can kind of make some of these changes that could have significant impacts in the businesses and some of these problems like don't surface until they're at a significant scale. And so by doing that early, you know, you have to, in financial services, no matter what you're doing, at some point, you're going to have to talk to these people. And so kind of developing that skill and knowing how how they communicate productively with regulators and policymakers is a really important skill. And I, I don't have a single founder of a business of any significant size that didn't think that spending time with these with these with these groups at an early stage was incredibly valuable. Um, uh, and then, you know, media, digital influencers, people like yourself who are you know, telling a story about fintech and can surface businesses like, you know, as, as, as you know, as probably listeners of the show know, like this is a, there are, these are great ways to hear about new products and ideas out there, recruit. Um, and so, you know, if you're selling something on the Internet, knowing how to sell on the Internet, pretty valuable. Um, and then investors, you know, we in, when we invest in you know companies, we're assuming that these companies will be successful. They're going to have to raise you know, half a billion dollars or something like that over the next five to seven years. That's like yeah. serious money. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the kind of money that we give access to here at the Financial Venture Studio. And so for the most part, uh, we need to connect our founders to these deep pools of capital and, and start introducing them and building those relationships pretty early. And so we got to try to do that as well. Um, and then finally, other founders, as we've kind of touched on, like most of the issues a founder faces are like things that like nobody really knows how to solve. Like, right. I, I don't know how much to pay, a, you know, a designer in Kansas City. No clue. But like I have founders. Can- a lot. A lot. <laughs> but like I have founders you might, you know, I have founders you might have yeah. leads on that. And so you kind of create some yeah. community around that can be really helpful. And all the goal of all this is to really save our, our founders time. And so they can move yep. faster and grow more quickly. And then what we try to do is, you know, be really helpful for that, you know, first year after we invest, which is, you know, hopefully the period from kind of that first money to, you know, in this market, series C, but, you know, really more like series kind of yeah. A, B. And, and at that point, you know, oftentimes the businesses kind of are often running and we kind of step back a little bit and you'll be more kind of chilliers and supporters. Um, so it really is a program designed to kind of help a, com- a fintech company. We only do fintech. Um, really get, you know, kind of started and moving quickly. And then hopefully like that DNA is going and they can kind of go off the races. Yeah. And I think it's also probably worth mentioning that your definition of fintech is open and creative, right? Like kind of like talking about Anvil earlier, if somebody just logged onto the Anvil site previous to, you know, them really leaning into fintech, you probably wouldn't have thought of them as fintech, but I would imagine that Anvil being part of the portfolio has benefited Anvil a lot because that's a that's a big problem that needs solving that made I don't based on their background they probably would have gotten there eventually but I would imagine that you guys have identified some workflows that they could they could solve for but definitely not like fintech classically right yeah yeah I mean I think I think your points your point your points you're, you're right I mean we definitely do try to try to be expansive and think about think about financial services as you know, financial services should help people solve problems. And if there's some element of the financial services stack where that's information or, you know, the time delays or whatever else that we can, we can eliminate to make the system better. Like that is FinTech. Um, And so, you know, we, I think our big thing is we want to make sure that we're going to be helpful. And I think we spend a lot of time when we're, you know, meeting companies and, and truthing, making sure that we're going to be their most helpful investor, and we try to avoid investing. In, you know, let's say, you know, we don't 
we don't want to be just another, you know, kind of checking the cap table and hoping things are working out. Okay. Like that's, that doesn't work for our model. It doesn't, doesn't really work for the return profile we're looking for. Um, and so we really do want to be kind of the most engaged investor in a company. And the only way you can do that is if you're actually doing something that's useful for the founder. Yeah. I, I really think, I mean, if I was, if I was starting a company today, um, I, I really think that mix, and it's funny that I asked you the question earlier, almost trying to go, not trying to go negative, but just curious if you had a negative perspective on it at all. But it seems like going YC and then financial venture studio, like you have the best of both worlds, right? You have somewhat unactive capital and you don't have to endorse this at the end, by the way. I just, this is my perspective. Uh, you have like some somewhat like help, helpful capital, but more so just like a really great network to sell into, right? And easy access to a great pool of capital. And then you have the YC brand on you. And then you have a group like Financial Venture Studio that rolls up the sleeves, works with you and helps you get from A to B on a lot of the stuff that a maybe more generic early stage accelerator may not even know to help you think about, right? They don't know where those landmines are. So it seems like, uh, it seems like the ones that have come out of there and come into, come into your world of have done pretty well. So maybe there's something to be said for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, think, you know, we've definitely, you know, we've framed ourselves at times kind of like grad school for FinTech, you know, FYC is kind of like college for startups. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, I think that was the, the, I think that was the name of our last episode. Our first episode, I think was called grad oh, yeah? school FinTech. Yeah. yeah I, think and so. I think that that's, I think that that's, that's a great position for us to be in. I and mean, we also like it when you go the other way and we meet them first and then they go to YC after like that, that also works. But I mean, I do think you know, we look at our portfolio, probably about a quarter of the companies. I mean, it's pretty high actually, probably about a quarter of the companies either have gone through YC at some point and it's kind of evenly split whether like yeah. we got there first or whether we, we met them kind of at, you know, or after YC. I love it. So the final question that you knew was coming, how can folks get a hold of you if they want to either apply for the next cohort, just get to know Ryan a little bit better, you know, take you out for dinner whatever it might be, find the treehouse. Yeah. What's the, the best way the to find tree, it? Um, the treehouse actually is I'm no longer there. So unfortunately that one's, that one's going to, going to. Okay. Gonna, All right. Well, if they want to come steal your airstream, no, I'm just kidding. Wait, what's, yeah. the, what's the best way to get in touch? So, you know, our website, www.finventurestudio.com. And you can always email me directly. I'm Ryan at Finventure Studio. Uh, you know, we try to be we're pretty open here. So, you know, we don't, we don't really don't need warm intros. So if you're working on something interesting, just like reach out. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, there's, um, we're, we're always looking for new companies. Nothing is too early, um, to you know, lead, start the conversation. Um, we're totally comfortable being the first check. Uh, we're comfortable being the last check. Um, and so, you know, happy to chat with anybody. I love it. I'll add it all in the show notes. Always good to catch up. I love that this is like a quasi yearly cadence and we just, we got to keep it going, man. Yeah, we have to do it again great, in, eight, in 18 months. Always a pleasure, man. Always a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining in on the conversation, folks. I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Ryan Falvey at Financial Venture Studio. Jump into those show notes to learn more and find out about Ryan, the man, the legend, and the Financial Venture Studio, the studio, the legend. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app today. That's right. I'm responsible. And... If you want our weekly emails, quickly becoming monthly emails, 
Money 2020 is an interesting experience working very hard. Go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, folks, stay healthy, keep your head high, and wait. Yeah, you know, Joni Mitchell, she was good. She, she had her day, you know. We'll see you next week, folks.